this one is one of the, the messages that is, um, to me, one of the tougher ones to discuss. It is the message on the state of the dead. What happens when we die? Our scripture reading is taken from Psalms 146. We'll start um, just reading verses 3 and 4, as was read for the scripture reading. Psalms 146, verse 3 and 4 says this, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. In that very day his thoughts perish. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, The State of the Dead, part of our series on apologetics. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word. We thank you, Father God, for your truth. We just ask now, Lord, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, Lord, a rusty, sorry nail. And upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let me not be seen or heard. There are many, Lord, who need to hear the liberating and hope-filled truth of the state of the dead. Father God, bless us by the power of your Holy Ghost to understand it fully today. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in the book of John. For some reason, everything is going in and out. Is it the new TV in the back that's making everything do something different? <laughs> John chapter 11 is one of my favorite passages of scripture. It starts, and I don't have, I don't have time to go through the whole thing today. It starts with um, Jesus being alerted to the fact that his friend, Lazarus, has become so ill that his sisters are worried he's going to die. The Bible says that Jesus waits two days before he makes the trip. And when he decides to make the trip to Bethany, Thomas says, let's go with him so that we can die with him. The Jews at the time were ready to kill Jesus. And it was a dangerous journey to go back where they might find him. But as Jesus gets back, the first one to meet him uh, is found in John chapter 11 and verse uh, 32. Actually, it's the second one. Martha was the first one. The Bible says, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. This is a greater truth than you might pick up just reading the passage. The reason Jesus delayed in going to Bethany to the house of his friends. Now, to show you how human, we talked about the, the nature of Christ last week. To show you how human Jesus was, he had friends that he, that he used for his own support and fellowship. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus weren't just Bible characters. These were people in whom Jesus confided and trusted, who fed him, who he laughed with who he shared things with. They were like family to Jesus. So the, the sickness of, of Lazarus was a serious thing. And the sisters of Lazarus believed that immediately when Jesus would hear this, he would come running and work one of the miracles they had seen him work before. 
She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. It's a truer statement than you realize, because if Jesus was in the house with Lazarus, no matter how sick he was, death could not exist in the same space as Christ. Now, y'all missing this one. In other words, he delayed on purpose, because had Jesus been in the house, Lazarus would not have been able to die. There was a purpose to what Jesus was allowing to have happen. You remember when he was in the back of the boat sleeping? And, and, uh, and the disciple come to him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? The reason Jesus could sleep is because Jesus knew that as long as he was in the boat, not one of them would die. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. They had hired um, um, uh, weepers. I don't know if y'all know that. They used to hire people to cry at the funerals. And so they were there weeping and crying. But when Jesus gets there, the Bible says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. When Jesus saw the pain on the face of Mary and Martha and heard the weeping of those who loved Lazarus, the Bible says it troubled Jesus. This is important because sometimes what we think is that when death visits our family, or our home, we think somehow God doesn't care. The story of Lazarus, is it, um, when you read it from its beginning to its end, is a story that speaks to just how much God cares about the pain we experience. Verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. They take Jesus they bring him to where Lazarus is buried. There's a stone in front of it, as we'll see. But when Jesus gets to the tomb, hears the weeping of those around him and looks at the final resting place uh, that's supposed to be the final resting place of his friend, the Bible records the shortest verse in Scripture. Jesus wept. I'll never forget when I was standing at the, you heard me talk about my mother. There are many in my family who have passed. And I remember standing at the graveside after we had interned my mother and she was in the ground. And as you stand there, you realize there's a finality to death that is gut-wrenching. In fact, I've never told anyone this, but for two weeks after, I would still call her cell phone number because her message, you know, her, she, you could still hear her voice. Death was never intended, church. I want you to know that God did not create this world so that we would be eternally separated from any living thing. God's design that even the food we ate would be self-reproducing. You would pick fruit from the tree without killing the tree. No death was to take place. When Jesus stood there and looked at Lazarus' tomb and heard the weeping of his friends, uh, Jesus was groaning in the spirit. And the God of the universe, the one who stepped out on nothing and made this world come into existence, Jesus, the creator of all things, wept by the tomb of his friend. He couldn't have been weeping for Lazarus. He knew what he was about to do for Lazarus. He was weeping because Jesus could look through the portals of time. He could see me standing at my mother's graveside. 
He could see the times that you've lost people you've loved. Jesus wasn't weeping simply for those in the moment. I want you to get today as we discuss death that Jesus wept when you wept. In Psalms, the scripture says, God collects our tears in a bottle. David says, collect my tears in a bottle and write them in a book. When we get to glory, when we get to heaven, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that God is going to wipe away all of our tears. What does that mean? I want you to know God's going to wipe away the tears you cried yesterday. You'll never remember the pain of loss again. Scripture says, Jesus wept. Verse 36, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. These are the hired folk now. And then, you know, you got to get the haters in the mix. And some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Like, wait a minute, what are you crying for? He got to stop this whole thing. Some of us treat Jesus like that today. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. When he says, take away the stone, Martha, if you study the story of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, you know, Martha is the one that's very conscientious. He's the one that makes sure things are in order. Uh, she, she reminds me of my, like my Aunt Doreen, always making sure everybody else is taken care of. Martha runs over. Jesus, you can't, we can't roll back the stone. He's been dead too long. Lord, by this time, he stinks, for he's been dead for four days. Now, in the Jewish way of thinking, the soul could not return to a person after three days. Did you get that? Three days. Jesus intentionally waited an extra day so no one could say, actually, he wasn't really dead. She says he was dead four days. Jesus said unto her, didn't I tell you when he met her first? That if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. Jesus thanked his father for the miracle before the miracle happened. That's faith. And I knew that thou, and I know that thou hearest me. But because of the people which stand by, I said it. That they may believe that thou hast sent me. This was the greatest miracle Jesus would work. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I don't know what it, if you can imagine what it would have been like to be at that graveside that day, in that crowd. People weeping, crying, many of them wondering, what is Jesus doing? Why would you roll back the stone? We're here for a funeral. Some of them are thinking we're getting paid for a funeral. Jesus steps in front of that tomb and says, Lazarus. Come forth. The reason Jesus has to say Lazarus and he can't just say come forth is because if he had just said come forth, every dead person in that cemetery would have woke up. And he that was dead, verse 44, came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, loose him and do what? Let him go. And Jesus Set you free. You are what? You're free indeed. 
Some of us have gone into the watery grave of baptism. We're talking about that in Sabbath school this morning. Let me tell you, you come up out of that grave, it's not enough to come out of the grave. You got to be loosed and let go of the stuff that caused you to be a sinner in the first place. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Many of the ones who got paid to come, when they saw what happened, they began to say, yeah, no, this guy is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But look at this, even in the face of his greatest miracle, verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And this was the final uh, act. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. After this miracle, they said, we've got to kill this man. Can you imagine the evidence Lazarus was? When people wondered if Jesus was the Messiah, can you imagine sitting at the table and the guy at the end of the table is like, yeah, I was dead four days and he brought me back. So let's get into death. We just give that story. We're going to come back to that story a little bit. But death is one of the things that is most uh, intriguing to ma mankind and has always been. So we ask the question, what is death? So as a physician, I would show you that there are ways that we define death. This is, this is, this is from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Um, the medical definition of death is this. It is the irreversible cessation of all vital functions especially as indicated by permanent stoppage of the heart, respiration and brain activity. It is the end of life. What you see above there is someone going from a scattered, um, no longer atrial uh, um, uh, um, heart rhythm uh, into a flat line where there's no more electrical activity in the heart. That is one sign that someone is dead. And as a physician, I've seen this. It is quite terrifying, obviously. But the other way, besides the body, is the mind. And here's the electroencephalogram. And you can see here that this is when you're awake, this is when you're in light sleep, this is when you're in REM sleep. See all that activity? Wish I had time to get into that and why REM sleep is so important. It's when you form memory and your immune system is restored. And here is deep sleep. And you see, death and deep sleep aren't that far apart. This is why we say in prayer, Father God, thank you for waking me up again this morning. When we sleep, you are, that is the closest you are to death. So what is death? It is the cessation of two things. The physiological functions of the body to keep you alive and the brain activity necessary for you to have consciousness. So your body can be alive and your brain be dead. Your brain can technically be alive and your body be dead. Death for the purpose of our talk is when these two things happen at the same time. And we'll see why we say that here in a second. So some people say, well, what about near-death experiences, right? So when we talk about the state of the dead, this is one of the questions. And, you know, people come back. I mean, one of, one of our, um, one, one Hollywood movie has a kid who went to heaven and visited all the people and came back to earth. Um, but what, we, what, the, what the science says is that the brain, as it dies, shuts down in stages and in parts. I wish I had time to really get into it. But what that means is the parts of your brain that are left alive begin to use your life experiences to do what is like a hyper dream, like a, like a, like, like a, like a mega dream, trying to stimulate you to be alive in a sense. So as the brain is dying, it is doing everything it can to do what it does during REM sleep, which is project dreams. So people have all kinds of experiences based on what they've experienced in life as they are coming near to death. Hypoxia does that. We've studied this in when G-forces get really high in um, 
uh, U.S. Air Force pilots. They get to a place where many of them have the deforce gets so high uh, that they get they have the same experience as a near death experience because of what its impact on the brain. A near death experiences do not say that when you die you're still alive, hovering over your body, looking down. It simply says there are parts of your brain that are still working. Now, and I'll show you that again. From a biblical standpoint, there are also two parts to death, in a sense. There's a first death and a second death. Now, let's look at this biblically. What is the first death? Well, sometimes the best way to, to define this is to actually look at what is life first. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a what? A living soul. So the soul equals the body, which is dust, plus the breath. That's what makes a soul. Now the reason the Bible says a living soul is because it is also ascribing to it consciousness, thought, the ability to worship, which does not happen in the lower parts of the brain. It happens in the frontal lobe of the brain. You are alive as a human being. You are made in the image of God, Genesis also tells us. And part of that is the complexity of the human mind. When Jesus breathed the breath of life into Adam, more than just air was transmitted. It also speaks to the spirit of God being transmitted. There was a spark in that breath that not only jump-started the heart that God had meticulously designed with his own hands, it jump-started the brain and its electrical activity. No, life did not begin in a primordial sludge and lightning bolts hit the pool of water and some proteins jump together and become bacteria. Absolutely not. You would wait forever for that to happen. Life began because God said it began. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. So if that's life. The soul is the body, the dust plus the breath. The breath is the spirit, Job 27.3. All the while my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostril. God breathed into him the breath of life. The Holy Spirit worked and life was created. I cannot explain it with all the training I've had. I can't explain it all. I only know that when Jesus breathed into Adam, life for humanity began. So what is death then? That means that death equals the body minus the breath and the spirit. You get that? So when that, what, that thing that God puts on you comes out, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says it like this. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. The spirit is the breath. The spirit by itself has no consciousness. The brain gives you consciousness. So the idea that you can pull out this this whispery um, Casper-like thing, I don't remember Casper the goat, that floats around without a body and has, a, has, has consciousness is not scientific, first of all, but it's definitely not biblical. And it's interesting, doesn't it? The Bible says you're made from the dust of the ground, and what are we made of? When you go to the doctor, what do they check? They check your, your levels of zinc and levels of, 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 of iron and levels of copper. They can check magnesium. Potassium, where do you find all those things? In the ground. Isn't that interesting? So literally, we are the dust, just as the Bible says. 
one of the reasons why eating a plant-based diet is so good, because the plants take what we need from the ground to perpetuate life in our bodies so we live longer and stronger. James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And this is a great one. Adventists have used for a long time. The body plus the breath equals life, which is a living soul. Body minus the breath equals death. There is no soul. I want you to, what, is, what, is, what must be carefully um, understood is that you cannot live outside of your body. That's not the way mankind was designed. And if you just stop and think about it for a second, what gives you thought is your brain. It's actually chemical reactions in the brain that we now fully understand. You pull the breath out, the brain dies, and you no longer can think, which is what the Bible teaches us. we're going to see. So then the question becomes, is there life after death? Jesus said that Lazarus was asleep. We're going to get real deep into what that means, but is there life after death? Well, let's go to the book of Job again. Job talked a lot about this stuff. Job 14, 12 says, So man lies down and rises not, till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake or be raised out of their what? Sleep, because death is a sleep. Oh, that thou would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until thy wrath is past, that thou would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? There's the question. You live after death? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. What is Job saying? Job is saying, listen, Job was, remember, he was being afflicted. He had sores. He was scratching his nasty big sores with, with his pot shares and stuff. And he was sitting there miserable. He lost his family. He was, he was in a horrible state. And you know what Job said? Job said, listen. Hide me in the grave, Lord. Why could he say it? Because he knew at an appointed time he would be resurrected again. If a man dies, shall he live again? He says, all the days of my appointed time, I will wait till my change comes. That's deep because he's talking about becoming glorified. And if you keep reading the passage of Job 14, he talks about forgiveness and other things. It gets really deep. That's Job 14. Look what Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says. We're studying the book of Hebrews in Sabbath school now. Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the what? The judgment. So judgment happens after death. You live after, after you die? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Death is a what? It's asleep. That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Is there life after death? Yes. But in the interim, you sleep. We're going to get deeper into it. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So we talk about those that are alive are going to be translated, meaning you never see death like Elijah did. Elijah never died. And so one day you, you will, Jesus will come in the clouds, the clouds will roll back, and those of us who are alive will watch as the cemeteries open up. And the dead in Christ will rise up out of the grave. And we will watch them defy gravity and be caught up to meet the Lord. And while you're ooing and eyeing that experience, 
you start to feel gravity's pull on you be released. We also will be caught up to meet the Lord. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Here's the thing. If you're already in heaven when you die, why are you, do you need to be raised from the dead when Jesus returns? Right? So it doesn't make any sense. Would you bring it, would you like bring your ghost back to put you back in your body? Like it really makes sense. Like you're turning something back to Walmart you really need to keep. It doesn't make any sense. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yeah, I like verse 18 because these words help me every time I have loss in my family. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I told you all this before. When my mother died, I stood at that graveside and everybody else left. All the guys down there in Miami were getting the dirt to fill the hole. And I prayed and I asked God. I said, Lord, mark this spot. And the angels of the living God come with you. At your second coming, I am asking, Lord, that this spot, they would come straight here. Liberate my mother from this casket. She would live again. And I was able to be comforted as I realized that this wasn't the end. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this. In verse 51, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Church, I'm tired of being corruptible. Tired of being weak. Tired of failing God. I can't wait till the day my change comes. Where I go from justified and sanctified to glorified. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So then, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written. Death is swallowed up. In victory. Remember what I said? It was God never designed. Death should exist. And one day, death will exist no more. John 5 says it like this in verse 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. In other words, there is a second death. So let's be clear. The first death, you sleep. You lay in the grave. Right now in the grave, the wheat and the tares sleep together. No one knows for sure who's saved, who's lost. Everyone is asleep. There's nobody in heaven looking down over the banisters of heaven on us. My poor, I'm so glad my mother doesn't have to live to see the stuff that we did after she died out. It wouldn't be heaven. But there's going to be another, there's going to be that first resurrection. 
And we'll talk about it in another whole talk. But there's going to be a second resurrection. And that's where we get the idea of the second death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to his, their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death itself, hell itself is cast into, hell here is the grave, is cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Look at this. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. Let me tell you something. You ought to be praying. Lord God, blot out my transgressions out of the book of works. We talked about this in Sabbath school today. And write my name. Make sure, Lord, it is there in the book of life. Revelation 21, 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the what? The second death. If you, if you have not made your calling and election sure at the by the time of your first death or before probation closes, which we'll talk about another time, when Jesus comes, it'll be too late. Let me tell you something. You can't get ready in the heat of the moment. You've got to be preparing for what's coming now. So what does death look like? Here's a diagram of my poor computer skills I created. You can see death. Here's the first death. It's asleep. It's temporary. Everyone in the grave, this is where they are right now. At this point, the soul is separated. The breath and the spirit are separated from the body and the spirit which God gives has gone back to God. But there's no living soul. The soul is separated. The second death is permanent. And in this one, the soul is destroyed. So there's a lie that goes around that says that when you die, you don't really die. Right? That you are in heaven or you're in purgatory or you're in hell. The first lie, Genesis chapter 3 says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden. Notice the first thing the serpent, Satan, says, he questions God. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. Look what the serpent says. The serpent says unto the woman, You will not surely die. First lie, that you won't die. Satan wants to promise immortality to those God has not granted immortality to. By doing this, he can fool them into thinking they can sidestep the consequences of rebelling against God. Here we go. Why did he lie? One, to convince Eve and us that sin does not have the consequences that God says it has. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul that sinneth, it shall what? It shall die. That's the second death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The wages, the cost, the payment for sin is death. That's the, if you labor in sin, your paycheck is death.
So what the devil wants to do is to convince you that you can live any way you want and you will never suffer any repercussions. The second one. Why did why this lie about death? To deceive us through fallen angels, the demons possessing, posing as the living. The story in the Bible that does this best um, is found here. Um, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. This is 1 Samuel 28. Then said Saul unto his servants, seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit. I'll go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said unto him, behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And the woman said unto him, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who have familiar spirits, and the wizards are out of the land. Wherefore, uh, then layest thou a snare for my life, to cause me to die. Saul had listened to what God said and said, okay, if you're someone who practices in necromancy and you're bringing the dead back to life and doing all kind of witchcraft and stuff, you got to get out of the land. So she was still doing it. And clearly people knew she was doing it because his closest people around him knew where to find her. Which tells you how much rebellion was going on in Israel. But the question that comes up as, she, as we get into the story is, how is it that people then see the departed? because people say they see it. I mean, my family's from Jamaica, and when I was a kid, my cousins would come up from Jamaica and tell us what we call duppy stories. And sometimes you couldn't even sleep the night. they tell you these terrible stories about these creatures and people coming back from the dead and popping up where they're not supposed to. How do people see these things if they don't exist? It is because Satan will have his demons impersonate the living. Saul swore that he wouldn't do anything. And look at verse 12. The woman says, who shall I bring up to you? In verse 11, bring me up Samuel. Verse 12, and when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why has you deceived me, for you are Saul? When this demon comes up pretending to be Samuel, that's when she realizes she's been duped. If she really was talking to dead people, she couldn't have been caught off guard like this. And the king said unto her, don't be afraid. What have you seen? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. But Samuel, would Samuel's soul have been trapped under the earth? Or wouldn't his soul have been in heaven if you believe what everybody tells you? It wasn't Samuel. First Chronicles 10, 13, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. Who did he inquire of? The spirit. You see that? He didn't inquire of Samuel. He inquired. This is where the Bible makes it clear who he was speaking to. He was speaking to the demonic power that worked through this woman. And inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. Isaiah says it like this. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits. And unto wizards that peep and that mutter, shall not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's what? There's no light in them. We are not to go. And I remember we were in, my, my, we were at, for youth congress when I was at Oakwood. We went, it was in New Orleans. My cousin Leon and I were down on, on, on Bourbon Street. Um, it was the middle of the day. And we were curious, checking out the place. We'd never been to New Orleans. At the back end of Bourbon Street, there was a voodoo store. 
And of course, being raised at Venice, we knew we shouldn't go in, but we couldn't help it. We wanted to see what it was like on the inside. So we decided to go inside. Of course, the girl at the desk was a pretty girl, so it was, we were all messed up, because they were like, oh, well, we can just talk to the girl, nothing bad will happen. And while we're in there talking to her, we say, listen, do you believe this stuff? Do you believe the voodoo? Do you believe they can bring people back from the dead? Do you believe these people can tell the future? And the girl's like, nah, I don't believe none of that stuff. She said, but I'll tell you what, the witch is almost done with the next client. I'll have you go in and talk to her. I said, but, I said listen, man, I'm out of here now. I am not talking to no witch today. Not, not, not no, no chance, no way. Never know what she might do to us. We are not to go and play with these things. They, you see, it's the power of, of the idea that you can go beyond the veil of death and speak to those beyond that lures many people in. And Satan uses it not only to teach false uh, teachings and doctrine, but he uses it to wrap you up emotionally. You see, we don't worship the people we've lost. We worship the God who made life. And when you get into this stuff, you start getting into people and then demons thinking they're people rather than just putting your trust in God. So how what happens? Well, Hollywood gets involved, right? They are teaching our children that when you die, you don't really die. This movie Coco was a smash hit. And it was about, you know, being able to go and it, it celebrates uh, Dias de los Muertos and, you know, you can, the day of the dead and you can communicate with the dead. And in California, you go to the, you go to the grave sites on this day and people put food out and they're sitting there singing and they, they're feeding their relatives and so forth. I don't know, maybe they do it in Connecticut too, but I haven't seen it here. Right? That this, they say this is the day when the veil between life and death is broken. And this is what the cartoon was about. Do you think Satan wants your children to believe this stuff? He absolutely does. But it's not just for children. The movie Ghost, you all, some of you might remember that movie. And he comes back and Whoopi Goldberg is the, she's like, she's like, like a Catholic clairvoyant who was faking it. And then all of a sudden she really could do what she thought she couldn't do. And the whole movie is about this connection that exists beyond. Of course, they make it science fiction with Ghostbusters. You notice that they try and blend this kind of spiritualism and life after death in with science stuff. I could, there's a ton of movies like that. Then they have shows where they say it's real. It's reality TV shows like Ghost Hunters. And they go in looking for ghosts and they videotape it. I remember one doctor was telling me, I was working in Cali. One doctor was like, no, 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 ghosts are real. Haven't you seen Ghost Hunters? I said, man, where's a good medical school? You think that they put it on TV is real? Now, don't let get me wrong. The devil can act out. You start looking for this stuff, stuff can happen. But Hollywood has really got it. Now, you, you see movies like The Lion King. You see down in the bottom left corner there. Um, but I remember when I first saw The Lion King and Mufasa showed up in the cloud. You're like, yay, Mufasa's still up. Wait a minute. Black Panther, famous, great movie. The whole premise is that he's able to go to the tree and speak to his dead father. And of course, they have the comedies like ghosts. There's no, the Satan isn't, he isn't playing around. And there's no accident why these teachings are, are made into humor and into action dramas in order to numb the mind and people believe that the dead are still alive. Because then you begin to pray to the dead, right? Can you pray to a saint or to Mary and get anything? No, 
just like us. They're, they can't they can't do anything for you. They're dead. So what are the truths about death? Number one, death is asleep. John eleven. This is what Jesus said to uh, to to um, to his disciples. John eleven eleven. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Verse 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is what? Dead. Sleep, biblically, uh, or the death is biblically called sleep. Let me tell you something, for the Christian, death is just a power nap. You close your eyes and when you open them again, you see Christ coming in the clouds of glory. That's why we have hope as Christians. We have a hope the rest of the world doesn't have. If Christ is in you, you have a hope they don't, the rest of the world doesn't have. Mark 5, 39, when he was come in, he saith unto them, why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleeps. And then he raises her from the dead. But the sleeping will wake up. Job 14, 12, so man lies down and rises not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. When will they be raised? When the earth comes to an end, when the heavens are no more, when Jesus rolls the scroll back, the, 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 the dead in Christ will rise up. Second Peter 3 and verse 10, for the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And if Christ comes a second time, Everyone will have to be awake, right? The first time he comes, the righteous dead wake up and are taken with him. But the second time, when he comes back after the millennium, I'll show you a, a diagram of that in a second. And he comes back after the thousand years, the wicked dead will be woken up. In fact, the wicked dead will wake up and the great generals and leaders all through history will side with Satan to try and attack the new Jerusalem as it comes down. So the truth about dead, one death is asleep. The sleeping will wake up, and in the sleep of death, the dead are unaware. Ecclesiastes 9 makes that point. And this is why you don't go to people telling you that dead people are telling you what to do. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. The dead can't come back into your house and give you romance advice. And you see that sometimes on TV, they have these people and they, oh, you know, they, of course, they're charlatans, most of them. Oh, I, I, I get a feeling. Someone, someone, someone's, someone's speaking to me for one of you in the audience. They said purple. They, they just whispered in my ear, purple. Does anyone, does purple mean anything to anyone? Well, my couch is purple. Oh, that must be Auntie Alga. What? She loved that couch. Yep, yep, yes, Auntie Alga. That's who did it. It's Auntie, she said the purple guy. She said, move it two feet to the left. They have nothing to do with life anymore. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with your might now while you're alive. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. And let me say it like this more clearly. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now while it can be worked out. The dead are unaware. Psalms 146.4, his breath goeth forth. He returns to the earth, and that very day what happens? His thoughts perish. The dead cannot think. 
They can't come back and help you. And let me tell you something. If you have a loved one that you are concerned might be somewhere helping you, watching over you, understand that rest and peace. God designed it the best way. What kind of afterlife would they have if they could look at all your problems and trials? If they had to be involved with all the stuff you were involved with. Letting them rest and sleep until Jesus returns. And that's why you say you can say that they are resting in peace. Psalms 115, 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, which means they can't be in heaven because if they're in heaven, they'd have to praise the Lord. Again, here's my diagram. You can see all the different parts of it. The other diagram I want to show you is this one. At the first, we'll, we'll go into the millennium in a whole nother talk, but here's the first resurrection. Here is where Satan is bound up. Christ returns. Uh, the living wicked are slain. The wicked dead remain in the graves, but the righteous come forth out of the grave here. And then there's a thousand years where we're in the new Jerusalem, and when Jesus comes back, here, after the thousand years, is where there's a second resurrection. And those who are in this resurrection will also experience the second death. We'll talk more about that at another time. There's some things that people question. They say, well, if what you're saying about death is true, uh, Dr. Walsh, then what about the story of the rich man and Lazarus? How can that story be in the Bible if what you're saying is true? But when you read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it is a parable. It is not saying that this is what happens because heaven is not in the bosom of Abraham. Abraham himself, according to what we know, is still sleeping in the grave. But there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. I'm going to show you why this parable is in the scripture. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. And likewise, Lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and thou art tormented and beside all this between you and us there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from thence then he said i pray thee therefore father thou would send him to my father's house for i have five brothers that he may testify unto them lest they also come unto this place of torment so what you would have to believe is that when he's in the grave He's being tormented and can see into heaven. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Jesus is making a parable because this was a common belief among the Jews at the time that you went to the bosom of Abraham, Father Abraham. Clearly, the Bible does not teach heaven is in the bosom of Abraham. The point of the parable, and the other thing, I mean, if he's really in hell and he's in heaven as a spirit, how, what finger is he going to use to dip and put the water in his mouth? The water would go through his hands. Like, it wouldn't work. All of it is a parable, an allegory, to make the point here. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The point of the parable is, if you're waiting for the dead to come back and give you instruction on how to live, you miss the source of life, the word of the living God. He says, they already have that. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went from the, to them, unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said unto him, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. In fact, the parable makes the point. The dead can't come back and help you. It's just an allegory. It does not have, there's no theological basis for the story. It's not telling you that this is what happened. It's telling you to learn the lesson that now is the time to get your life right based on the word of God. Some people say, well, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, let me see if I can just find the verse here. Therefore, we are, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So some people say, well, when I die, I'm absent from the body and my spirit is present with the Lord. You notice this is not what this is saying. I wish I had more time to go into the first part of it. What Paul is saying is that when I die, when I die, the reward I'm going to get is going to be to be present with the Lord. He's not saying when you die, your body splits in pieces. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may accept him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The point of this one isn't that you die and you go through, you die, I'm absent from the body. Nope. The point of this one is that one day you will receive the reward of being present with the Lord. But Paul isn't rushing it and saying, I can get there right now. He's saying you got to be preparing, like the other one, for the judgment to come. The other one that some people like to use is this one, Luke 23, 42 and 43. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. This is the thief on the cross, remember? He said you know, one of them cursed, God, cursed Jesus, continued to curse Jesus. The other one came to his senses and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized the kingship of Christ on the cross and would be rewarded. Verse 43 messes a lot of people up. They say, and Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And some people say, well, the thief on the cross went straight to heaven. The problem is, if you read the New Testament, Jesus didn't even go to heaven that day. They couldn't have been with him in heaven because two days, three days, on the third day, when he runs into Mary, he says, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Jesus can't lie, so he couldn't have been in heaven with the thief on the day, on Good Friday. Many say that the problem is the commas in the wrong place because there were no commas when they were translating it. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto you, to, verily I say unto you today, like right now, you will be with me in paradise. He was promising him in the moment eternal life. We'll finish with this great text. John 11, 23 through 26. Jesus said unto her, this is going back to our story of Lazarus, when he was speaking to Martha, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She understood he would sleep and rise later. Jesus said unto her, this is the point of this doctrine. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall what? Shall never die. This is the question he asks Martha. Do you believe this? 
The, the, the real power of the doctrine of the state of the dead isn't just knowing that man isn't conscious now. It isn't even simply knowing that the time to get right with God is right now. That's part of the doctrine. You don't get a second chance. You don't get to go to purgatory. There's no such thing as for purgatory nowhere in the Bible. No, none of those things exist. The time to get it right with God is now. But that's still not the most important lesson from the doctrine of the state of the dead. It is here in these verses. The real power is that death has no power over you if you believe in Christ Jesus. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's why for the Christian, death is just a power nap. It's just a temporary state. You will rise again. You will live again if you die and Christ is in you. Let me tell you something. My, my cousin Sean who signed a $36 million contract with the Redskins when he came out of the University of Miami playing football. When he was murdered in his home and I had to go to that funeral, that was a painful funeral. All of the NFL was there. The Redskins team, the Hurricanes football uh, program, everybody was there. Celebrities all over the place. Most of them just looky-loos, honestly. But I remember as I went back by his house, big beautiful house he died and left. The BMW and the other cars. He had a giant boat. Jewelry like you wouldn't even understand. And I can remember on the day of his death, only hoping that the words of my grandmother were sufficient in him to know Jesus Christ as his savior. Because you can't take the BMW with you. The boat cannot be taken. The jewelry, they can put it in the tomb, but it's not going to do you no good. Look at Pharaoh's. We go to, they pull up the mummies now. They just take the stuff from them. The house can't go with you. The bank account, somebody else is going to spend that money. Are you getting what I'm saying? The only thing that happens that you, the only thing that can happen that will assure you that your death is an honorable death is that you die in Christ Jesus. Now let me tell you something. One of the reasons I love this doctrine is because it gives me hope. When I think about my grandmother that I lost and my grand aunt and my aunts and my cousins and all the people that have died in our family, this doctrine reminds me that if I am right with God myself, oh, I hope I'm near that cemetery. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we look up and you see a cloud the size of a man's hand coming in the distance. And as it comes close to the earth, you can begin to hear the angelic hosts. Come on, somebody. And all of a sudden, the sun looks dark because of the brightness in the cloud. And all of a sudden, the atmosphere begins to roll back. The clouds begin to separate. And as we look up, those that have, do not know Jesus Christ begin to run for cover. They're slain by the brightness of his coming. But we say, this is our God. Lo, we have waited for him. And then all of a sudden, that cemetery, so quiet, so peaceful. All of a sudden, things begin to change. Like you're popping popcorn, the graves, some of them start to move. And all of a sudden, bodies begin to pop up out of the ground, restored to life, not a blemish on them, 
No signs of the cancer that took my mother's life. The gunshot that took my cousin. The bullet holes. No sign of it. And as they come up out of that grave, glorified, and I get to watch them rise. Church, I can't wait for the day when I can defy gravity myself. I'm caught up in the clouds with Jesus. And I can't wait for that ride back to glory. Seven days it'll take. And on the way back, I'll get to meet folk. I'm like, where's Daniel? I want to ride in the chariot with Daniel. Where's Daniel? I want to ask him what them lions are doing. Where's Joseph? I was like, man, how do you survive prison like that, man? You're an OG, Joseph. You just handle prison. But I tell you, when I get to glory, the one I want to see most is Jesus. Can't imagine what it's going to be like. Because time doesn't mean anything anymore. And he individually places the crown on our heads. We, the redeemed of the Lord, take the crown off our head, throw it at his feet. And we say, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Church, don't be afraid of death. You have a hope in Christ Jesus. And I know some of you have lost, some of you love. Hold on to God. Make your calling and election sure. The only hope we have in this universe is in Christ Jesus. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the hope of your soon coming. Lord, even as the world is again embroiled in war, we know, Lord, that you will soon come and put the chaos of this world to an end. The lesson from the state of the dead is not simply that the dead are unconscious, not simply that there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection, not just, Lord, that, um, uh, that, that, that we are um, going to be judged at some point, the great lesson is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that now is the time to get to know him. I pray that for our church family, Lord, that we would all know Christ Jesus like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, Martha knew to know him as a friend, a savior, and a king. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.